When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can review a case study involving a psychotherapist who has cluster B personality pathology. So in the DSM, cluster B contains four personality disorders, antisocial, narcissistic, borderline, and histrionic. It's known as the dramatic, erratic, and emotional cluster. Now, sometimes there are characteristics that drive somebody to enter into the counseling profession and related professions that can cause difficulties in terms of how they treat clients. Altruism is sometimes one of these characteristics. So altruism is a desire to help other people. It's a facet of the trait called agreeableness, which is one of the big five traits. We see that high agreeableness has been associated with a number of problems, including boundary crossing and boundary violations. It's worth noting, of course, that high agreeableness in general is considered socially desirable which I believe is one of the reasons that counselors with high agreeableness sometimes get away with boundary violations. Sometimes people look at that situation and think, oh, I'll just give them a pass because that clinician had the best intentions. So a typical case study involves a counselor or another type of psychotherapist who wants to present information from one of their cases, like a client's history, psychopathology, and response to treatment. This is done with the client's consent and details are changed to protect the client's identity. The case study I'm reviewing today in this video is a bit different. This case report was written by a psychotherapist, and it discusses the experiences she had with one of her clients, who was also a psychotherapist. Like many of the case studies we see in the literature, this particular report is based on psychoanalytic theory. I know a number of counselors disagree with the core ideas behind psychoanalytic theory like the unconscious mind, defense mechanisms, and drive theory. But placing that debate to the side for a moment, psychodynamic and psychoanalytic practitioners really do write some of the best case reports we see in the literature. They're almost always intriguing. There's something interesting about the work of Sigmund Freud and some of the early psychoanalytic theorists. A number of the ideas that these early theorists had seem bizarre and implausible upon first reading about them. But then, after being in practice for a few years, many of them really start to make sense. 
This is a cycle I've seen many times in my clinical work and through my experience as a professor. A great example of this is the idea of altruism itself. Again, most people think about it as positive, but Sigmund Freud was highly suspect of altruism. He believed it was a defense mechanism like reaction formation. So with reaction formation, somebody views their own drives, feelings, and desires as being socially unacceptable or even unlawful. So the individual reacts in the opposite way to compensate for that, to keep that drive in the unconscious mind. For example, someone might have a constant desire to consume substances, so they might advocate for tough laws punishing people who use substances. In a sense, with psychoanalytic theory, some people who are altruistic are trying to mask their own desire to harm people. Sigmund Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, coined a term for this, altruistic surrender. Of course, it's important to recognize this doesn't cover everyone who is altruistic. It's just one way that somebody could be altruistic. In this case report, this is the psychoanalytic explanation for the behavior of the psychotherapist who was the client. Now, taking a look at this case report, the individual who is the subject of this report is a 55-year-old psychotherapist. I'm going to refer to her as Pamela. The author of this case report was Pamela's psychotherapist. I will call her Sarah. Five years prior to the events covered in this report, Pamela, who had a private practice in another city, closed that practice and relocated to take a job at an agency. She referred all of her clients to other clinicians. One client, however, who I'll refer to as Crystal, threatened to harm herself if Pamela did not agree to continue treating her. So this is how I thought about the names here to just help keep the story straight. You have Sarah, who was the supervisor, and Sarah begins with an S, so that matches. Pamela, the client of Sarah. Pamela is a psychotherapist, so Pamela starts with P, and so the psychotherapist. And then Crystal, who is Pamela's client. And I chose this name because the C in Crystal and the C in client. So we have Sarah treating Pamela, Pamela treating Crystal. So Pamela really didn't have any way to treat Crystal in the new location when she moved. Her new employer would not allow Pamela to operate a private practice on the side. Furthermore, Pamela didn't have an office or liability insurance. Pamela decided to treat Crystal anyway. So we can see here how a journey down a bad path starts with one step. For Pamela, this is that step, although of course there are underlying conflicts that made her vulnerable to make this mistake. Now, without an office available, Pamela started to meet Crystal in parks and restaurants, but both of them believed that there was difficulty here in terms of privacy. So eventually, they decided to have sessions in Crystal's car. When Pamela sought out the writer of this report for treatment, Sarah, Pamela had been treating Crystal in the backseat of Crystal's car for several years. So this brings up an interesting point. Technically, a therapy session can be held just about anywhere where there is privacy, right? So it has to be relatively comfortable, private, and there are a few other things you'd want, but privacy is really the most important. It certainly doesn't have to be in an office. But I consider alternate venues more appropriate for emergencies, and I would never recommend having a session in a client's car. Pamela's judgment here is not good. But amazingly, that's not even close to the worst of it. Crystal would often lay her head in Pamela's lap. Again, this is in the back of Crystal's car. 
Pamela would drive two hours to Crystal's house for emergencies. Crystal would say the only thing that would help calm her anxiety is if Pamela would lie down with her on her bed, holding her. Pamela indicated to her supervisor that she felt trapped by the client. Pamela was desperate, depressed, and preoccupied by the situation with Crystal. It was causing difficulties in other areas in her life, and she even contemplated self-harm. So Sarah is really put in a tough spot here. Pamela comes to her, tells her about all these things that are going on, all these boundary violations. Sarah doesn't immediately know if she has a duty to report Pamela's behavior. However, Sarah does realize that Pamela needs treatment, and Sarah tells her that directly in the first meeting. Now, this is where we really see the influence of psychoanalytic thinking. Sarah conceptualizes Pamela's problem as being attributable to material in her unconscious mind, right? So it starts off strongly here with psychoanalytic thought. So Pamela asks Sarah if she would be willing to both supervise and treat her, right? Because Sarah pointed out the treatment aspect and how that was really important. So Sarah answered that she was willing to do either, but not both. So supervise or treat. I thought about this for a while when I read this part. Did Sarah make the right call here? I certainly agree that she cannot provide both services, but I'm not sure if Sarah should have offered Pamela a choice. I think Sarah should have maintained the supervisory role because that one's a little bit more important here because, again, Pamela has her own client, Crystal, who she is damaging. Now, Pamela didn't like this answer from Sarah. Pamela said it was hard enough to come and see Sarah in the first place. So eventually, Sarah did agree to both supervise and treat Pamela, but the supervision component was supposed to be temporary. Additionally, we see that Sarah requested that Crystal be seen by another therapist. Pamela refused to do this, and she was not negotiating at all on this point. So in taking a step back from this, as I mentioned, I think the initial decision not to act as both the supervisor and the therapist was a good idea, but then Pamela pushes Sarah into making what I consider to be a bad decision. Although to be clear, it was Sarah's responsibility to make the correct decision. It wasn't up to Pamela. So now we see that Sarah is providing both services. It's interesting how the dynamic between Crystal and Pamela, which is so alarming to Sarah, and it should be alarming, now plays out between Pamela and Sarah, right? We see that type of dynamic repeating itself. Something else troubling here, Sarah contacted a consultant about the situation with Pamela. The consultant told Sarah that there was no duty to report because treatment and supervision is what the state board would have mandated if Pamela was reported. So just to be clear, this is not how this works in counseling, and I'd be surprised if this is how it works in any mental health treatment profession. Considering the extreme boundary violation perpetrated by Pamela against Crystal, it seems likely that reporting would have been necessary. Clinicians don't get to decide what the punishment or remediation might be and then try to deliver those services instead of going through the proper authority. If the penalty instead of treatment and supervision was a $1,000 fine, could Sarah have collected that money and said, okay, you're good. I took the $1,000. That's what they would have charged. That's what the fee would have been. So now it's all square. That's not how it works. In the interest of fairness, however, over 90% of professional complaints against mental health clinicians are dismissed without even being investigated, often because they have no basis. But still, legitimate complaints get caught up in that. The reality is that the state board might have done nothing because the complaint 
might have been disposed of at the investigative level. It may never have reached the state board. Now, with this being the case, it still doesn't excuse Sarah from not reporting, but it makes her behavior a little bit more understandable. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pamela met with Sarah twice a week for psychotherapy and supervision with the understanding that one of the treatment goals would be that Pamela would have to find another supervisor, right? So then Sarah's role could just be treatment only. It took Pamela a year before she was ready to go and find another supervisor. Sarah determined that Pamela was not sociopathic, but believed Pamela had narcissistic, obsessional, masochistic, and hysterical features. It's not clear from the report whether an official diagnosis was ever given, but the closest disorders would be narcissistic, obsessive-compulsive, antisocial, and histrionic personality disorders. The antisocial piece is pretty interesting here, given that Sarah didn't think that Pamela was sociopathic. So Sarah thought Pamela was masochistic, but not antisocial. Now, eventually, Sarah started to believe that Pamela was demonstrating excellent insight and ability to reflect and was able to make good use of interpretations. Sarah thought that Pamela would be a good candidate for psychoanalysis, sometimes just referred to as analysis. But Pamela did not want to lay down on the couch, so they did the analysis with Pamela seated. Right, So that kind of famous picture, that famous scene of a therapist sitting and like writing something down and a client laying on the couch, that's actually a real situation that's seen in psychoanalytic and sometimes psychodynamic work, right? It's not common. So I was a bit surprised to see that even here in a very psychoanalytically oriented case report. But again, it does happen. The analysis went on for five years. This part alone really emphasizes the difference between psychotherapy that's not psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic work twice-weekly sessions for five years. That's a lot of time between the client and the clinician. It took two years for Pamela to finally refer Crystal to a competent therapist. Crystal was infuriated, but she made the transition to another therapist. Crystal never filed an ethics complaint, even though her new therapist recommended that she do so. So here once again, we see that Pamela was not reported. Extremely disappointing but not surprising. At least Crystal's new therapist recommended the right course of action, so I have to give some credit to that therapist. Now, even though Crystal did not file an ethics complaint, she did call Pamela's employer. She told Pamela's boss the story. Pamela's boss came to Pamela looking for an explanation. Pamela told him that she had given in to emotional blackmail. So here we see Pamela is placing the blame for her own bad behavior on her client. 
Pamela's boss congratulated her for getting herself out of that terrible predicament and mentioned how he was glad that he didn't have Crystal as his client. I have to wonder from his response if he really knew the whole story, but at least he did ask for an explanation. Many clinicians in this position would not have. So what was Sarah's theory about what caused Pamela's unethical behavior outside of the personality abnormalities or pathology that were identified in the report? Well, this is psychoanalytically conceptualized, so it's a bit overcomplicated, right? Here's the story. Pamela had guilt about leaving her practice. She had a particularly high amount of guilt related to Crystal because of Crystal's early traumatic experiences. Pamela had a bad experience with her first analyst. She viewed him as strict, callous, cold, and rigid. So essentially, Pamela was trying to be the opposite of her first analyst. Also, Pamela idealized her mother, and they developed a complex relationship. When Pamela was between one and two years old, she had a number of painful surgeries. Pamela's mother would leave Pamela alone in the hospital during this time. Pamela developed empathy for her mother. She understood that this would have been a difficult time for her mother. Sarah showed Pamela how the mother's failure to stay in the hospital would have constituted traumatic abandonment. Pamela started to think that she must have unconsciously protected both herself and her mother from the terror that Pamela must have experienced in the hospital. This identification with herself as a child in the hospital became projected upon Crystal. She could not abandon Crystal because that would be putting Crystal through an experience similar to what Pamela had gone through. Pamela could not do to Crystal what her mother had done to her. She couldn't abandon Crystal. Pamela couldn't find relief or awareness until she allowed herself to become angry at Crystal, and this helped her to connect with her own rage toward her mother. So this is really classic psychoanalysis. A bad relationship with the mother is always the culprit. I would have been more surprised if this did not come up in the report. Now, this doesn't mean that this is a bad conceptualization. The psychoanalytic view actually makes some sense in this case. For example, we know that traumatic memories have a great impact on personality, motives, and behavior. Under this conceptualization, Pamela developed pseudo-altruism. This type of altruism forms from conflict, and it becomes a defense mechanism for masochism. It's a defense against a need to suffer, a need to be a victim, envy, and aggression. The person manifesting this pseudo-altruism is joyless. They don't get any joy from helping the proxy. They are left lost and confused, unable to satisfy their own needs. So one criticism I have here of the psychoanalytic school of thought is that it seems like psychoanalysts always end up with a solution like this. Not only one related to the mother, but one that seems to fit together very nicely. I don't know if I've ever heard a psychoanalyst say, look, I've worked with this person for many years, and I just can't put the pieces together. I can't figure out a narrative that explains what happened. They always seem to come up with kind of a really perfect and reasonably well-formulated explanation, but it makes me wonder if there's not some confirmation bias going on, like they're only looking at certain evidence and considering it, maybe kind of cherry-picking certain parts of the narrative to fit with the puzzle. But either way, that's something I've noticed here. There always seems to be kind of a perfect explanation. And in this case, that's what we see. We see a conceptualization that's very tight, very reasonable, 
And actually, it's somewhat more complicated than what I've talked about here. There's more in the case report that goes into some other factors. But either way, it's still quite cohesive. In other modalities like cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of times when working with people, we can get some of the thoughts and some of the behaviors and feelings together and kind of work it out. But it doesn't always make complete sense. So I think there's maybe more of a willingness to have an imperfect conceptualization sometimes with CBT as compared to psychoanalysis. So what about the ethics in this particular case? Well, interestingly, later on in the case report, we see that Sarah acknowledges that she crossed a boundary here by both treating and supervising Pamela. Eventually, she recognized the parallel between herself and Pamela and the relationship between Pamela and Crystal. Sarah makes a distinction, though, between what she did, boundary crossing, and what Pamela did, a boundary violation. I'm not sure I completely agree that what Sarah did was really just a boundary crossing and not a violation, but I can certainly see that Pamela's violation was much more serious, right? So if we're going to order them, Sarah's was less severe, but I think it may still have wandered into the area of a violation. I would need more information to know that for sure, but this troubled me a little bit, seeing somebody act as a supervisor and a treatment professional at the same time. Now, Sarah once again emphasizes here that Pamela would not have agreed to be treated by a clinician who forced her to terminate the treatment with Crystal. So I see her point here, but this is really kind of saying like the end justifies the means. And even if one were to argue that that's true, it took two years for Pamela to stop treating Crystal. That's two more years of harm that was caused to that client. So what would my thoughts be in terms of conceptualizing this case well, my thoughts are certainly less complicated than the psychoanalytic view. I would say due to a stressful relationship with her mother, trauma, and other difficulties in her childhood, Pamela developed borderline and narcissistic personality features, which led to a failure to maintain boundaries. Even though what happened to Pamela was tragic, she should not have been a practicing clinician. She needed therapy to maintain boundaries without having a caseload, right? So there are some areas where clinicians can improve as they continue to practice, but with boundary violations, the clinician has to stop practicing and be treated in order to develop, grow, and work out a solution. So they shouldn't be seeing clients at the same time, right? If it's a serious type of occurrence, like a boundary violation. I feel compassion for Pamela, but also feel quite a bit for Crystal. She received horrible and unethical treatment from Pamela. It's hard to imagine that that continued for two years after Pamela was receiving treatment herself, right? So this is really a troubling case, no matter what angle it's viewed from. It's troubling for Crystal. It's troubling for Pamela. And as I mentioned, to some degree, I'm not really thrilled with the behavior we see from the supervisor, Sarah, right? So we see a lot of learning opportunities here at many levels in terms of what somebody should do to be a competent mental health professional. Now, it's important to note here that I don't have all the information. I only have the case report. And even though it's extensive, there might have been other elements that were left out that would lead me to change my mind on many levels of this case. So I'm not diagnosing anybody here or saying somebody was unethical, but rather I'm just speculating about what could be happening in a situation like this. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media. 
all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.